You're listening to Below the Radar, a knowledge mobilization project recorded out of 312 Maine. This podcast is produced by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Below the Radar brings forward ideas to encourage meaningful exchanges across communities. Each episode, we interview guests on topics ranging from environmental and social justice, arts, culture, community building, and urban issues. This podcast is recorded on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Hi, I'm Rachel Wong, and I'm pleased to introduce this week's guest on Below the Radar. Our host, M. Johal, is joined by Samir Gandesha, who is the director of the Institute for the Humanities at SFU and an associate professor in the Department of Humanities. In this conversation, Am and Samir look at the current state of the world's political order, where we currently see a wave of populist movements all over the globe. With the ubiquity of social media and the rise of divisive rhetoric on different socioeconomic lines, Samir explains how these contribute to what he calls the new liberal identity. Welcome to Below the Radar. This is Am Johal. I'm here with Samir Gandesha, the director of the Institute for the Humanities and an associate professor with the Department of the Humanities. Uh, welcome, Samir. Thanks, Am. It's great to be here. Yeah, Samir, I uh, was really uh, excited to talk to you because uh, you've been for some time now uh, writing about authoritarianism, the neoliberal personality, as well as uh, a lot of other uh, theoretical work. And wondering if you can talk uh, a little bit about the writing and thinking you've, were, you've been doing around uh, this notion of the neoliberal personality. Uh, sure. Um, I, th- I think my interest in this area kind of goes back several years now, um, and it stems from um, some of the programming that we've been doing at the Institute, uh, and it was really focused around that um, uh, majority government of, of Stephen Harper's um, and the way in which, um, under Harper, the um, structure of the Canadian state started to transform somewhat. Um, and there was a, um, a crackdown, for example, on what um, uh, librarians and, and federal government scientists could say to the public. Um, there was, of course, um, the 2015 um, terrorism, anti-terrorism legislation uh, that was passed. Um, and, and much of this was geared up towards the um, forms of indigenous resistance to various kinds of economic development projects, in particular uh, pipelines, as we know, obviously a big, uh, big issue, uh, an ongoing issue in, in this province. So that sort of um, sparked my interest in uh, looking at developments in Canada and then beyond Canada to the rest of the world, obviously, uh, with the election of Trump in 2016 and um, the uh, referendum in the UK um, to leave the European Union, um, developments as well in Turkey and in, in India, uh, and now more recently in, in Brazil, um, sparked uh, my um, questioning of how it could be possible um, within a, a neoliberal, let's say, world order now, um, could have the return of authoritarianism. And the reason for that question is because 
uh, in Germany, in West Germany, um, uh, at its founding in 1949, you had a very uh, influential school um, called uh, the Ordo Liberal School based at uh, uh, Freiburg University. Um, and one of the um, main themes of Ordo Liberalism was that in order for us uh, to prevent the return of fascism in, uh, in West Germany, it's necessary to um, firmly regulate the state. And the way you do that is you'd use the market um, to enforce a kind of rationality within the state apparatus, which would prevent the return of an authoritarian and indeed fascist state uh, to come, come back. Um, in a way, the Freiburg School was looking at things uh, from a very different angle, but trying to answer similar questions to the Frankfurt School. Right. Um, which was, uh, what were the historical causes for fascism? Why wasn't there a revolution when the objective conditions seemed right? And then Adorno's um, taking this up in, in the post-war period to think about the authoritarian personality, to think about um, what he calls the um, formulation of a new categorical imperative um, after Auschwitz, namely that uh, the Holocaust not repeat itself. Um, so uh, the problem is, is, is essentially shared, but the, 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 the answers to that problem or the solutions to that problem are very different. So in, in a nutshell, um, it shouldn't be the case, according to the logic of ordo-liberalism, that um, neoliberalism gives rise to uh, authoritarianism. But this has been exactly the opposite. We've seen it uh, um, uh, first under Thatcher, uh, the authoritarian populism that Stuart Hall talks about as of even before the election of Thatcher in 1979. There's a book on policing the crisis in 1978. Um, and that really sort of leads to this kind of movement within uh, the state and also within elements of civil society within our, in, in what I would call social psychology towards a real kind of authoritarian um, uh, shift, which is coming into, as it were, full fruition these days. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, uh, uh, several years ago, you edited a, a book on Adorno and Arendt. And so in, in a sense, you've been thinking about this for a long time. It's not right. even a recent thing. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that project. Right. Well, thanks uh, for that question. Um, this is true. I mean, uh, theoretically and conceptually, I had been thinking about this for, for some time. And indeed, it goes back to um, uh, an essay that I contributed to the Adorno Companion, Cambridge Companion to Adorno on Adorno's critique of Heidegger and uh, what Adorno calls Heidegger's uh, jargon of authenticity. And so authenticity is, of course, in a very important uh, 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 word today um, in terms of how the right organizes itself. But also you can say it's part and parcel of the left's identity politics as well. Um, Adorno and Arendt are interesting figures to juxtapose uh, because there's a you know, famous story uh, about the relationship between them uh, whereby um, Arendt's husband at the time, um, uh, Gunther Anders, had uh, wanted to invite uh, Adorno uh, to, to their home. Uh, Adorno had just helped uh, with Anders's, um, uh, I think it was his Habilitation Schrift, you know, the kind of postdoctoral dissertation. Um, uh, on on music, I believe it was, and um, uh, Arendt said that one's not coming into the house. Uh, she was quite uh, adamant because she was a you know longtime friend and lover uh, of Martin Heidegger, and Adorno was very very critical um, of Heidegger. Um, 
but despite those sort of personal animosities, which were more on the side of Arendt than Adorno, um, there are some remarkable similarities in terms of how they try to think through uh, the problem of what Arendt calls totalitarianism uh, and what Adorno simply names as, um, as fascism or authoritarianism. And one of the key points of intersection is um, uh, an incapacity or lack of ability to think. I mean, this is Arendt's reading of the Eichmann trial. Uh, Eichmann was somebody who only thought in slogans. Uh, he couldn't really formulate thoughts and he couldn't exercise his judgment. This is what Adorno calls in his critique of the culture industry um, a, a, a lack of capacity for, uh, for experience, right? to actually experience the world, uh, to experience others. Um, because what um, experience means is some encounter with alterity with something that is other, that, that in some ways can threaten you, um, that calls your, your, your being um, into question, which is what we encounter when, when, when we um, encounter the best uh, uh, of artworks and best of you know, musical works. These are, these are things that profoundly affect us. So with the rise of the culture industry, for, and Arendt has a similar sort of notion, uh, we lose the ability to think coherently, we lose the ability to exercise judgment, we lose the ability to um, uh, engage in experience in a, in a profound and substantive way. How is this relevant? Well, today, especially with the, the proliferation of over the last, say, 15 years uh, of social media, uh, we see the way in which um, echo chambers develop, right? Uh, and we're constantly fed back um, views that are, are, are almost identical uh, to, to our own. So we have these sort of reinforcing mechanisms by which our worldview is constantly confirmed. That means the inability to think, it means the uh, destruction of experience. And that has really formed one of the key subjective grounds for uh, the return of authoritarianism. Uh, last point on this, um, when I was in Brazil, in February, I taught uh, a course for a week there. Um, the students were telling me how important uh, social media uh, uh, was in the election of Bolsonaro. Not, not so much Twitter. Uh, Twitter is very important for people like Modi and, of course, uh, the, the tweeter in, in chief himself, uh, Donald Trump. Um, but it was WhatsApp. And so it would be the circulation of these mass um, uh, text messages via WhatsApp and proved to be very influential. So I think that, you know, this, this problem of, uh, of how popular culture, how commodified culture affects us comes back in this dramatic way uh, with social media and everything we know about it in terms of the manipulations of Cambridge Analytica and, you know, problems uh, with Facebook sort of, you know, um, commodifying uh, our, our information, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah, and when we seem to be going through a, a particular moment around uh, authoritarianism and populism, but it's landing down in countries in different uh, ways. You've traveled to India recently and uh, we're teaching in Brazil. Uh, of course, uh, Erdogan in, in Turkey, uh, Viktor Orban in the context of um, Hungary, and uh, it functioning in a, a type of way within the European uh, Union itself. You're seeing it uh, in terms of the, the Brexit campaign uh, as well. I'm wondering if you can sort of um, uh, share with us your thoughts about, you know, why 
this type of uh, populism, authoritarian populism, is landing down in this particular moment and how you read these different situations? Because they're, obviously they're not the same, but there is a kind of interconnectedness that these things are kind of erupting in places in a particular form and time. Right. So um, I would say there's a, a, an objective institutional dimension to this and there's a subjective dimension uh, to this. Before I come to those, I would say um, by way of a kind of preface uh, that we can see these trends already back in the 1990s and late 90s with, with for example, Haider in, in Austria and the, the Freedom Party there. Um, but it is only really accelerated between two key events. Um, and these would be 9-11 uh, uh, on the one side and then the 2007-2008 crash. And here you have, in a sense, a perfect storm um, in Europe and North America, uh, though one would say not so much Brazil, uh, for um, the, the resurgence of authoritarian populism. So 9-11 becomes the... the kicking off point for the neoconservative agenda, right, to fundamentally remake American foreign policy and make it um, uh, much more uh, aggressive and proactive in terms of fostering regime change. And we've seen the effects of that throughout the Middle East and North Africa, which creates then this tide of um, probably not... Although you could say in Latin America they were involved in that, in the... 70s and 80s. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and, and no doubt. Um, but that's, in, in a sense, uh, part of the, the story of American exceptionalism, and, uh, the Monroe Doctrine, Manifest De Destiny, and so on. It's really seen, you know, Latin America as its backyard, in, in which you can do pretty much as it as it pleases. So, absolutely right. But um, there's a specificity there uh, that, that has to be um, uh, understood as well. Um, but your point really is well taken because the, the so-called migration crisis on the southern U.S. border uh, is one that, that didn't come from, uh, you know, the heavens didn't just drop from the sky, but was actually actively created by an interventionist U.S. foreign policy going back to the 19th century. Um, but this very specific crisis uh, has to do with the, um, the uh, active, uh, very aggressive muscle flexing in, in the Middle East. And we see that continuing today vis-a-vis -vis the, um, uh, the, the sanctions placed on Iran and the, you know, the bellicose uh, kind of rhetoric and, and saber-rattling saber there now. Um, so you have kind of neoconservatism uh, coming uh, out of this um, uh, uh, set of attacks on, uh, on, on the United States homeland. And then 2007, 2008, you have the full fruits of neoliberal deregulation, uh, which, of course, go, go back to you know, the, the, the late 70s, early 80s, but really, uh, I think in the United States, uh, especially um, have a lot to do with Clinton's, uh, Bill Clinton's reforms um, to deregulate uh, uh, banking. And so you have then this tremendous sense of economic and social insecurity experienced by people who, for example, have to walk away from their mortgages and their homes uh, while uh, Wall Street gets bailed out because these financial institutions are apparently too big to fail. Uh, that creates then um, uh, anxiety, resentment, anger, which can then be mobilized um, uh, against 
um, immigrants, migrants, people of color, LGBTQ people, trans people in particular seems to be um, bearing the brunt of this. Um, the argument about authoritarian populism is that it, it you know, it, it's it's got either to do with economic anxiety or it's got to do with racism. But I think the two um, have to be understood as going hand in hand. You take the economic anxiety and you, you provide a kind of um, uh, racist uh, uh, account of the, the roots of, the, of that anxiety. So as I was saying, you know, an institutional um, dimension and then a kind of or objective, uh, uh, quasi-objective dimension and subjective dimension. So, say the institutional dimension is is baked into liberal democracy, right? Where you have a contradiction between, on the one hand, um, uh, a restricted conception of freedom. Freedom has to do with what you know figures like Hobbes would call an, an absence of obstacles to, to, to mo the continuance of motion. You know, As long as you don't have barriers to your ability to dispose of property as you see fit, um, you're free. And, and, and that's the extent of it. If you don't actually participate in property ownership and uh, appropriation, uh, disposition, um, then um, your freedom is rather... Uh, limited, so you have this very narrow conception uh, of freedom, um, which is in conflict with a, a notion of equality, uh, not just um, you know equal treatment under the law, but the idea ultimately in a democracy that we should participate um, in a, in in making uh, the laws under which we live. So. Um, this contradiction, I think, creates in incredible stresses. It, it leads to frustration. It leads to anxiety. It leads to um, those things I was, I was speaking about earlier, anger. So when you have then a particular socioeconomic crisis, as I was saying, bookended by 9-11 on one hand, 2007, 2008, those contradictions really kind of burst forth uh, and create, they don't create in and of themselves uh, authoritarian populism, but then create the conditions within which uh, populist movements can mobilize um, by using, you know, very uh, divisive uh, and destructive, you know, outright misogynistic and racist kinds of rhetorics, and that's what we're seeing. Um, so the subjective side, I've already, in a sense, covered. You have, you know, this, in a sense, promise um, of a good life, a promise of, uh, of a fulfilled life, one in which um, we uh, are, are, are able to make the key decisions uh, about our, our lives um, and their fates. Um, but that promise is unrealized. So rather than looking to transform the system, more in line with that promise, um, we try to find scapegoats. We try to find those others who are responsible for our sense of, uh, let's say, failure. You know, um, uh, and it's a completely misbegotten sense of a uh, failure. It's it's a one that's built into the structure. It doesn't do. It doesn't have to do with a personal failing. But I think the neoliberal context especially encourages us to think about every success, but of course every failure, as uh, our own responsibility. So this becomes unbearable. So one then has to, to find some uh, other entity, uh, some other individual or group to blame for. You know, and there certainly the is plight. this kind of creation of an enemy both within the borders and, and, and certainly one out 
uh, side of it, but it lands down differently in these places in India right. and Hungary and Turkey and Brazil. And wondering if you can talk a little bit about the specificities Good. and the nuances of these places. Yeah, I think this is really um, where the rubber hits the road in a sense where you have to uh, come to terms with um, this specificity. And, uh, you know, one approach that I've found that, that helps quite a bit is uh, Samir Amin wrote a really quite a nice. A concise piece about um, the return of fascism. It was in the uh, pages of Monthly Review. It came out in 2014. Um, and he came up with quite a good definition of what fascism looks like today. Um, and he holds that it is, um, it comprises a categorical rejection. He says democracy, but I would say categorical um, rejection of liberal democracy, right? So all the kind of freedoms uh, of, of association, of um, of the press, free expression, and 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 so on. These come under uh, particular attack, um, and the uh, uh, the um, notion of uh, of a division of power. Um, and checks and balances, in particular, that offered by the courts comes really to be um, uh, uh, undermined. Um, but what justifies this is some notion of, of an authentic collective identity based in sort of ethno-nationalist terms. And I think we could say um, this is a very good definition that then can be worked out it's, let's say, a kind of structural definition that then can be worked out historically in different ways given the particular geographical region that we're talking about. Um, to take India as an example, you see this uh, very much that you know the, the, the institutions of liberal democracy are being called into question. Um, not just the institutions of liberal democracy, but let's say the, um, the integrity of scientific uh, discourse. Um, uh, and the autonomy of the university. Uh, these are really being um, uh, challenged head on. And, you know, with this re-election of, of the BJP, uh, one can only see more of this, a real consolidation of this attack. Um, and it's being done in the name of uh, Hindutva, uh, Hindu nationalism. The idea that, that, that Hindustan is really, you know, um, uh, the land of Hindus. And if you're not a Hindu, then you have really two two options: um, convert back into Hinduism, right, um, or leave. You know, the the, the Muslim uh, population is especially directed to uh, to do this. Um, go to Pakistan uh, if you if you don't want to either you know bow down to to a majoritarian rule and therefore do everything that the the majority which is to say the bjp says um convert or um goodbye so this is um i think a, a, an example of a kind of ethno nationalist um agenda uh it's fascistic insofar as it really does um place the collectivity and the leader of that collectivity, Narendra Modi, um, very much above any uh, notion of constitutional checks and balances. Um, so we could see that, you know, I mean, we don't have to look too much further afield in this country here, Canada, where Harper was, um, prior to the, you know, the, the, the previous election, talking about um, old stock and new Canadians, um, with a certain suggestion that um, immigrants had 
you know, better bow down to those who, uh, who settled um, and ruled and continue to rule the country. We've seen the most recent version of that in the United States um, with uh, um, this, this statement of, of Trump's that those who, who uh, want to criticize the country uh, should better just go back home to, to where they came from. So this is a, a, a kind of um, constant. In Brazil, um, the situation is different. Uh, I had a, uh, an hour-long discussion with um, a colleague uh, down there uh, at USP, um, University of Sao Paulo, uh, Vladimir Safadle, um, and he uh, has been one of the leading public intellectuals. I, and I think he's now taking a great risk by by continuing his activities. But he does, and, and he's, I think, very courageous. We spoke um, ab about many things, but in particular, what gave rise to the situation um, uh, in Brazil, that is to say, Bolsonaro's uh, election. There's many components to this, not least of which is was the incarceration of Lula, who, who despite the, the waning fortunes of the PT, um, the Labour Party, um, maintained tremendous popularity uh, amongst the population and probably would have been uh, uh, re-elected. Um, but this didn't happen, uh, of course. I mean, this is what's often called a, a judicial coup. So there was real kind of um, uh, complicity amongst the, um, uh, the state elites um, to uh, prevent Lula from from uh, 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 being a, a political force. But it seems to me from my discussion both with, with, uh, uh, with Safadle um, and also a number of other colleagues there and students was that the, the key watershed moment was t 2013 where you had um, uh, 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 this enormous series of um, protest actions throughout the country um, which were kicked off in Sao Paulo, and it was essentially about something quite, you know, minor, um, which was uh, the increase in bus fares. Right, but this was just, you know, it was that spark that um, that really uh, set ablaze um, uh, a, a whole set of uh, sort of demands and 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 frustrations. Um, what started out as a kind of left uh, movement. Um, for better sort of accountability and responsiveness uh, on the part of the state to the needs of uh, of, of the poor um, w became hijacked uh, by the right and by the party of order. So the very thing, in a sense, that um, uh, made the gave the right some prominence in this in this moment was the very thing that it it, it started to militate against, which was to say the kind of disorderliness. Of, of, of Brazilian society, which then you know culminates in in somebody like Jair uh, Bolsonaro, so there's a kind of fluidity to politics these days, and we see a kind of echo of this, I think, in the Gilets Jaunes movement, right, yeah. and how it it, it has um, a kind of uh, uh, Janus face to it. Yeah. And now, in in you know, I guess this is sort of in the case of Modi, but certainly with Viktor Orban in in Hungary, where you have. Um, um, you know, distortions of process playing out, you know, basically an attack on the, the, the liberal state in many ways. And then when they come up for re-election, despite 
the outrage uh, coming in from outside of these countries, they're being uh, uh, elected with overwhelming majorities. So if you go to Hungary today, oftentimes, um, uh, you know, despite these sort of uh, attacks on Central European University, that there is a kind of popular support within these countries because of these constructions of enemies within and without. And um, trying to, um, uh, you know, they, they say, you know, we're not living under authoritarianism. There's still a rule of law. and But there are constitutional uh, changes being made with supermajorities that are um, restricting access or remaking the state in pretty fundamental ways. Right. And uh, as with Poland, um, again, one of the aspects of the state that, that's being remade is a judicial system. A judicial system is being fundamentally transformed. Uh, and when that happens, you, you, you really lose um, that key check on executive power. Um, and the, the constitutional, constitutionality only really works when you have uh, an independent Judiciary, um, and so this is one of the things that is is being fundamentally undermined. And it's you know Viktor Orban who's who's come up with uh, the terms, not just him, but he uses it quite frequently in defense um, of illiberal democracy. He's quite happy about being an illiberal democracy. Putin himself recently said that. Um, the days of liberal democracy are done, and there are people, of course, on the right who who agree with them. There are also people, either through omission or commission on the left, who kind of agree with that, too. Liberalism is just a fraud. Um, well, I wouldn't be so quick to throw it out. You know, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Um, I think on the left, we've always wanted to to deepen the uh, process of democratization. And the experience of the 20th century holds that we can't just get rid of rights, can we? We can't get rid of the, the rational and 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 valuable structure um of the the legacy of liberalism um on uh, understood in, on, on its own terms it's not sufficient and in fact it, it produce, produces a kind of opening for for authoritarianism and fascism but it has got to be some dimension of the society that we're struggling for i think um, but today that's really debatable um now going yeah. into the uh federal election uh here in canada fall 2019 uh, with all of these different populist uh, forces uh, on the table and in plan, I guess in a way it was opened up in the 2015 election with some of the, the, the rhetoric uh, coming from particularly the conservative campaign. Uh, but we're seeing, uh, you know, things like the People's Party, uh, Maxime Bernier, uh, but also um, others. And I, I imagine it's going to be heated. We're going to see these uh, forces uh, come into play in a more mainstream way than we've seen uh, in recent years and wondering what your sort of political reading of uh, of this federal election is. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that we are going to see um, more, in a sense, Trumpism in, in Canada. We're going to see this as, uh, as a strategy um, to really uh, nail down a hardcore of racist, um, xenophobic, misogynist, uh, base, and I think that, that that last point is really crucial because I think it, you know there's uh, various um, church groups in Ontario who really push an anti-abortion agenda, who were behind Doug Ford, um, and the the logical conclusion of this, uh, as we've seen, is Alberta. I'm sorry, um, Alabama, Alabama. I shouldn't say that, um, but Al Alabama, where abortion has has been completely criminalized. Uh, I think this would be an important 
dimension. Um, I think we sometimes uh, underestimate how um, important misogyny is to this authoritarian uh, resurgence. I think this is a this is a, a constant. It's a common denominator in all of these movements. Um, the idea of um, you know s- strong traditional masculine leadership. And um, I think this is one of the things that the the Conservative Party here will uh, continue to try to uh, make hay out of. Um, unfortunately, you know, the, 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 the successes of authoritarian populism um, are as much about, uh, you know, their organizing capacities and, you know, their technological savvy, that is to say their use of social media and so on, as it is about the failure uh, of left alternatives. Um, unfortunately, I hate, hate to say this, but uh, Jagmeet Singh has not been a particularly good leader for the NDP. Um, there hasn't been a, a, a strong political force in Canada as there has been in the UK, whatever you think of Jeremy Corbyn, he has actually articulated a strong left agenda. Uh, it might be a bit too reminiscent of, you know, 1970s uh, laborism. Um, there are other aspects, you know, that have to do more with sort of local democracy and so on, which are, which are quite interesting and, 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 and valuable. Um, but I think most exciting is what's what we're seeing in, in the United States with not only with Sanders, but now, um, uh, of course, Li- Elizabeth Warren has come uh, to the forefront um, and has injected um, very important, interesting ideas into the debate um, uh, amongst the, the, the front runners of, uh, for the Democratic nomination. I see this as important precisely because one of the things about populism, right and left, is the, the focus on one leader. One sort of leader seems to have the right answers. You know, on the right, we have leaders who seem to try to embody a kind of mystical will of the people. On the left, it's, it's the, the, the person who will speak truth to power and will articulate a, a strong uh, agenda. But their personalities are so important, right? Um, and then, of course, you even have, you know, notions like Bernie bros, which is, which is a very, I mean, it was um, uh, a, a term of, of, of criticism. Uh, it was to denigrate, you know, the, um, the supporters of, of Bernie Sanders, but it just shows how important the leader is. If you have now a situation in which, um, you know, sort of democratic socialist ideas are becoming sort of more, in a sense, mainstream, it's, it's a kind of mixed blessing on the one hand that the ideas can be incorporated and neutralized, but it also means it's a, it, it, it opens up some, some interesting spaces for, for discussion. And you don't then just have one person who represents it, um, but uh, maybe more than one. Maybe two. In this country, we haven't really had that, and it's and it's uh, very unfortunate insofar as the country has played a, a key role in in uh, articulating both right and and left versions of populism. You know, the, the right wing version was in the, in in the nineties, um, in the eighties, late eighties and, and early nineties, the Reform Party, right? And there's still that element in the Conservative Party, and I think it's going very much in in that direction, as opposed to the progressive conservative kind of legacy in that party. Um, of course, the, the NDP comes out of the CCF, which was a kind of left populist party, right? So um, it's interesting how today Canada sees just this vacuum on, um, on the left. Um, and I don't know how that's going to be uh, um, 
redressed. I mean, one of the things that has been really interesting about the Labour Party is the, the role of movement, um, or sorry, of momentum. And then also uh, Bernie Sanders was able to capitalize on a lot of the energies from, from Occupy. But do, have we had those social movements outside of Quebec? I'm but you know, so interesting, sure. around uh, the, the pipeline debates in particular, where you see um, uh, the state not only uh, buying a pipeline, but also uh, uh, placing activists under surveillance, particularly indigenous communities, um, and the uh, extent to which some of it is just, you know, uh, become public uh, just in the recent weeks. Uh, but you do see um, uh, these aspects creeping their way um, into the system, which was, you know, essentially part of uh, normal public discourse to be able to protest, to be able to uh, raise these questions. But when you politicize the approval processes, and I think this is another kind of dynamic that's, uh, I mean, it's always been there, but uh, the yeah. way it's been amped up. No, absolutely. Uh, you, you, exactly right. That when, uh, for example, you have sort of uh, members of the establishment saying that the National Energy Board has been industry, become industry captured, um, then people lose faith in the in the process um, and must uh, uh, voice their um, uh, their concerns by other means, which means peaceful protest civil disobedience. A number of uh, SFU faculty have actually exercised um, their, their right to civil disobedience uh, on Burnaby Mountain. And while they should, because they talk about these ideas. I do. Um, you do when, when you teach in the, in the classroom. Um, and for us not to then engage in action is, um, is a problem. We have to, you know, in a sense, put, put our you know, actions um, together with, with our words. Um, I was concerned about precisely this a um, number of years ago when the, um, uh, the legislation uh, that became the, um, the bill that became the, the anti-terror legislation, C-51, um, was being discussed. Uh, we at the Institute had, a, had and with, with your uh, uh, um, help and co-sponsorship, we put on a, a, a big discussion about it with the, the leading constitutional experts on the question. Um, and the room was packed. It was like 320 people there. Very worried about this, um, but it was clear from the way the legislation was drafted that it was, it wasn't um, really uh, to get, get back to your your kind of differentiation. It wasn't about the enemy from without. It was about the enemy from within, which is say, in particular, indigenous uh, land defenders, people who were simply um, uh, defending their land, living on their land. Um, and uh, the, the ironies of, of a country seeking to engage in a process of reconciliation while at the same time um, uh, tabling this, this legislation uh, abound. And, of course, the Trudeau government said it would amend the, the legislation when it came to power. It really hasn't done that. Although, I mean, you had a number of former prime ministers, uh, ex-chief uh, justices and so on, who said it's not amendable, that it would have to be fundamentally rewritten because it's so flawed uh, from a constitutional standpoint. So, I mean, uh, one of the things that I'm known for around here a little bit is talking about things like f freedom of speech, freedom of expression. Um, and that immediately puts me into some kind of um, uh, camp where uh, I'm, I'm seen to be easy on fascists and things like this. Um, and this is, this is pretty outrageous. I don't think people don't understand how important these freedoms are to express dissent. Um, and I think this is, again, it's part of this uh, unwillingness to really think about the contradictory nature of the the, the liberal democratic 
tradition. I think there's a tremendous pessimism and cynicism with um, uh, with these institutions, which are to- which is totally understandable. But if we get so mired in that, we really do help the other side. Yeah, yeah. and uh, in this context, where you know this week uh, or last Sunday, I guess, uh, where. Uh, Donald Trump, um, you know, openly in a very racist uh, tirade of tweets, went after four congresswomen, women of color. I mean, this was a kind of rhetoric that was dog whistled in the 80s, often by fringe candidates. You wouldn't see the president of the United States speaking so brazenly in such a racist and misogynist way. Or it was from the era of, you know, George Wallace or somebody of these like third party candidates who weren't going to come close to the the levers of of power so um a, a kind of thing where there are you know very much targets around um communities of colors heading into heated uh political frames and um you know how, how to think about this in in terms of uh this moment where you do have a president that can basically get away with it and it's in a way a political strategy to go after the left wing of the Democratic Party, to heighten the contradictions within that party. It's it's a savvy political move in terms of whipping up uh, the base of the Republican Party, which in many ways Trump has captured. There, If there are moderates in the Republican Party, you don't really hear much of them anymore. And so in some sense, uh, the vehicle of the Republican Party, which Noam Chomsky calls the most dangerous political party in the world, um, has been... Uh, taken over from within in in many ways and and uh, I don't know if there's and and, and given all of the uh, public financing rules in the states and uh, you know very much unchecked open season kind of fundamentalism that is uh, financed within the Republican Party it's a, it's a very difficult thing to undo or unwind or to turn back like is it is it even possible to recover as a kind of mainstream conservative force if it ever was one. Well, that's a, that's a huge uh, question. Um, the only thing that I, I could really respond with, and I think it's going to sound uh, maybe a little bit weak, um, is a kind of demographic argument that, that as the Republican base starts to die off, um, you are going to, that party is going to have a harder and harder time um, uh, replacing it unless it makes some kind of uh, movement back to a, a more moderate sort of position, which is not to say that, you know, um, groupings like the alt-right uh, don't consist of, uh, of young, um, uh, angry, uh, frustrated, um, entitled white males. Uh, but I think overall, you see this in the UK, for example, those who voted uh, overwhelmingly to um, to remain within the European Union under 40, 35, you know, uh, and I think that um, those who voted uh, mainly for the Democratic Party in the last election were uh, of a similar uh, uh, demographic. So I think demographics are going to play a huge role, which is why we've seen over the last, you know, decade or so, maybe a bit longer, um, uh, voter suppression. There's a real worry. And, and I think I guess the, this is know. one of the challenges where yeah. you have a Supreme Court that has been tipped Absolutely. in a particular way. So yeah. when 
issues like gerrymandering when they would go to the Supreme Court uh, are now the Supreme Court's not going to be stepping in. And so there is a kind of rules of the game that's being established by the election of Trump and his choice of Supreme Court justices that does kind of tip the scales in in a particular way. I think I'd make a second point, which is that I think also um, when the uh, Democratic Party, both its, uh, you know, predominantly its mainstream or moderate wing, uh, but their inability to connect with the genuine resentments of the white working class create the conditions where the Republicans can play on those fears. And to some degree, um, there are uh, genuine resentments about the loss of the manufacturing sectors and those uh, types of things that I think also exist in Canada in a, in a number of ways uh, where uh, engagement uh, from the progressive wings of the party haven't gone into those communities in areas where the rhetoric and means of engagement are very different. No, absolutely. I've just um, been reading uh, Phil Neal's Hinterland, which is a really interesting uh, kind of political economy, uh, urban geography, and also kind of geology of the, uh, let's say, the the tectonic shifts in um, the United States uh, since the 70s that have then produced something like Donald Trump. And um, he makes this exact argument that uh, the although he doesn't like the term white working class, but the working class um, which, uh, of which a, a, a sizable proportion uh, is white um, has been, in a sense, forgotten by the, the political elites. And this has been part and parcel of a certain kind of neoliberal identity politics. Um, and, and this is quite troubling when uh, you look at, for example, the, um, the candidacy of... Kamala Harris, um, who plays very well amongst a certain constituency within the Democratic Party, the most loyal constituency of which are um, uh, uh, female uh, African-American party members, right? Um, And I mean, Elizabeth Warren is very, very popular with them, but also you have, you know, that appeal of Kamala Harris. Um, And she tries to come across as progressive but if you look at our actual uh, record it's much more mixed um, she is kind of a law and order uh, former prosecutor and so that can then be again a, 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 a sort of repetition of, of Obama who presents a kind of prog- progressive face but um, uh, whose policies were extremely destructive both on the domestic front and um, uh, specifically vis-a-vis his response to the um, the economic crisis, which hit African Americans hardest, or much harder than than uh, than whites, uh, in in uh, same sort of socioeconomic uh, class categories, uh, and of course, you know, in terms of foreign policy, uh, pretty disastrous. So this is what often gets set up. Um, now you you'd expect on you know in the proper left for there to be much more nuanced discussions of class. But I don't, I don't see this. I think there's, a, there's an attempt really um, to, I think, attack white people individually. Um, and I think this is completely counterproductive because it then, not only does it, you know, is there a vacuum that's created um, uh, within this group insofar as nobody's actually addressing their concerns, but then there's a kind of, 
um, demonization um, from a moral standpoint. And one can understand, you know, given the, the context today, one can understand where this comes from. Um, you know, there's a tremendous amount of, uh, of, of, of fear and anger on, on the part of um, uh, people, uh, communities of color, LGBTQ communities, and, and this is understandable. But to engage in politics per se, or politics as such, we have to move beyond that sort of moral condemnation. We have to say, how, I don't really like that person at all. I don't like what they say. I don't like how they dress. I don't like what they do. But we have something in common. We need to find a way to work together. And this is the politics of alliances or, you know, really hegemonic politics where you stitch together different demands um, into something that's coherent and actionable, right? Whether you like the person who's making that demand over there really shouldn't matter too much. We get very hung up on this. I think there's a kind of moral purity that's, that's operative in the, on, on the left today, and we have, we've really got to move beyond that. I'll give you a couple of examples. One that I like to talk about all the time is, is um, the film Pride, which uh, documents um, this LGBTQ+, plus, although it was gays and lesbians, really, for the minors at that time. Um, and they supported um, the, the miners by raising money. And they took the, 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 these funds um, uh, to Wales and, and they met these communities and they were not well received at first. The, the homophobia was, was, uh, was through the roof. But because they had a common project and really a common, in a sense, political enemy, they were able to ultimately uh, work together. You know? and, and also you, you see the, the, um, uh, uh, the Punjabi uh, youth movement in, in Southall um, in the 1970s and 1980s, coming together uh, first as a kind of self-defense organization, right? It's like the East Indian Defense um, uh, organization here in, in, in BC. Um, but their experiences fighting against the, the National Front, um, uh, the neo-fascist uh, uh, political party um, at the time, then led to them having a class analysis of the kind of, you know, forms of oppression within the South Hall Punjabi community and also were able to build alliances with other movements such as Rock Against Racism, Anti-Nazi League and so on. This happened in the 1970s. I think we've, we've lost something of that ability to, to work together even though we don't all, you know, like each other. Uh, we don't see eye to eye. We have aesthetic differences. We have, you know, um, cultural differences, maybe linguistic differences, et cetera. But I think we have to, at this moment, start to rethink it. Yeah, so, uh, Samir, you have a, a book project that you're editing called Spectres of Fascism that was, came out of the, the free school that the Institute mm. for the Humanities uh, initiated. It's coming out in 2020, I think, around March or somewhere yeah, close to the there. Hope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, can t tell us a little bit well, about that. Thanks for letting me <laughs> plug the book. Um, yeah, so as, as you mentioned, uh, it came out of this free school uh, that we had uh, about a year and a half ago that was... Um, really um, inspired by some of the developments that had, had been happening over the previous, um, let's say, uh, year or so, uh, we felt um, at the Institute that we needed to um, not just have uh, you know, one-time lecture or panel discussion, but a sustained conversation over several uh, uh, months, um, and which also included a conference on the, uh, the Situationist International, um, right, in a sense, in the middle of it, bisecting it. Um, and so we had a number of local uh, and some visiting speakers to talk about different aspects of, um, of fascism, 
not just specter of fascism, but specters to think about the differences in the way in which these forms of authoritarianism um, and you know neo-fascism are playing um, themselves out um, the world over. So it essentially consisted of three parts. The first was to look at the historical experience of 20th century fascism. You give us some orientation, you know, what is it we're talking about when well, we have to talk about this historically. Um, and then uh, we had a discussion of the theories and concepts of, of fascism that maybe came out of this historical experience. So we had uh, um, uh, some talks on uh, Klaus Tevelites, a book on uh, male fantasies, very important to think about, again, as I said earlier, the misogyny that lies very much at the heart of a fascist kind of subjectivity. Uh, Guattari's work on, on fascism. Um, I've got uh, something on Adorno's um, uh, authoritarian personality, which is very much part of, you know, as you were saying, thinking about the neoliberal personality. Um, you've got uh, a chapter on on Carl Schmitt, a very important figure for understanding the um, way in which the state today is really consolidating its, uh, let's say, ex executive. The executive branch is is becoming really foregrounded, um, and we're moving increasingly in the direction of um, uh, states of exception. Um, abrogation of the normal functioning of of legality, uh, and um, so there are other you know um, uh, conceptual and theoretical uh, perspectives, and then we have various case studies. Um, We've got um, a terrific piece by uh, Ajay Gudavarti, who's one of the key public intellectuals in India today. He's, a, um, he's just written a, a book called India After Modi. He uh, is uh, in, in very high demand to comment on, uh, on the current state of Indian politics. Um, terrific piece uh, by him and, and his brother. We've got um, a piece on the relationship between the French New Right and the U.S. Alt-Right. It's quite quite fascinating, by Tim, Timir Baron, who himself has written quite a bit on, on fascism and, and the French New Right. Um, we have um, uh, a terrific uh, piece by the fellow I mentioned earlier, Professor uh, um, Vladimir Safadle, uh, looking at the uh, Latin American space as the laboratory for a kind of authoritarian neoliberalism. Right. So often people think of neoliberalism as this way in which um, a transition was made away from Keynesianism towards you know, market mechanisms and associated with, with Thatcher and Reagan and this country Mulroney. Right? Um, but there, there's a prehistory, one that includes uh, the transformations in New Zealand state just prior to that period late 70s but most importantly 1973 uh, with the coup that overthrew um, Salvador Allende had, um, Pinochet coming to power essentially the uh, a kind of dictator who then brought the boys from Chicago in to fundamentally remake uh, Chilean society along neoliberal lines so Safadli is talking about how in a sense we are seeing now the second iteration of this laboratory where the neoliberalism will be ex exclusively um, uh, uh, fascistic in nature. And this is, this is Bolsonaro. Um, so I think it's going to be quite, and you know, there's, there's many, uh, many other uh, contributions um, uh, as well. The last one I, I mentioned is uh, um, 
Uh, now I'm thinking people are going to say, well, you didn't mention my chapter, so <laughs> to go through each one of them. Um, but there's great pieces by uh, Jalai Mansour looking at um, uh, the relationship between Italian futurism and, and, and contemporary alt-right. Um, Hilda Fernandez, uh, a Lacanian understanding of uh, the authoritarian populist leader. It's entitled So You Want a Master. Um, another piece by Johan Hartler on the, the sort of... The, the kind of uh, the spectacle of of left uh, uh, politics in the art world and and so on. So I think we we've got quite an, quite an interesting um, array of authors. And this is really I should just note um, in in conclusion um, it's kind of first iteration because what we uh, are planning to do at the institute um, in approximately a year is to have um, uh, a very um, say ambitious conference on the, um, uh, now the consolidation of authoritarian populism. Um, and our plan is to produce, you know, uh, a, a top quality book that will, um, th th this book that I've just been talking about specters of, of fascism is more, you know, an intervention, it's a political intervention. And, and, and this book that, that I, uh, I'd like to do in the future coming out of this conference would be more of an academic scholarly, uh, contribution so yeah great stay tuned. thank you so much for joining us samir i just have one final question predictions on the 2020 uh u.s election uh i'd, I'd be foolish to offer a prediction <laughs> um but um i think if if the the democratic party handles uh, the nomination race properly unlike nearly four years ago um then the party, if it has Sanders or, uh, or um, what's her name? Elizabeth uh, Warren. Elizabeth Warren uh, at the helm. Um, I think it would, it would stand a very good chance uh, of, um, of taking the White House. Uh, but as things stand now, the party seems, I mean, with so many contenders, and, and it's still quite early, um, so many energies being, uh, you know, directed uh, uh, in, 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 in far too many um, uh, uh, directions. I'm not so sure. I don't, I don't know. It's very hard, hard to see, um, you know, them being able to triumph. Whereas Trump has been able to, I think, consolidate his support despite everything. He's, he's Mr. Teflon. Uh, the stock market is through the roof right now. Um, it's very difficult for an incumbent president not to be elected when the economy is is firing on all cylinders although we just recently noted that uh, i think so, uh, the u.s has seen a 75 percent reduction in chinese investment because of the trade war the, there might be all kinds of fractures that are just starting to develop that that become very prominent and evident uh, by 2020 so it would be silly for me to, to make any <laughs> predictions. The president still at 45 percent. thank you so yeah. much for for joining us samir my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you again to Samir Gandesha for joining us on this episode of Below the Radar. You can learn more about SFU's Institute for the Humanities in the link that we provided in the episode description below. Thanks also to our production team, which includes myself and Maria Cecilia Saba, to Davis Steele for our theme music, and to you for listening to the show. Be sure to tune in next time on Below the Radar. <laughs> <laughs>